Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So you're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM and we're going to be talking to a performance poet, theatre maker, screenwriter, facilitator, project leader, winner of the UK National Slam at the Royal Albert Hall, that was some years ago, um, but yeah, all those things in one person, uh, Leila Josephine. Hello Leila. Hi, how are you doing? Really nice to have you here on Love the Words. And um, yeah, so I mean, it, it, first of all, yeah, are you primarily a poet, would you say? What, what, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like people always ask me that. They're like, oh, do you do spoken word or do you do poetry or what do you do? And I think like, I think I've started to call myself a poet more than a spoken word artist, but I don't really know the difference, to be honest. I think it's a lot of, a lot of jargon, but yeah, I'd say I was a poet mostly. That was what I spent most of my time doing. I was going to ask you, actually, yeah, I mean, about, I mean, it's probably very hard for you to say what an average week entails and what you're doing on any particular mm. week. But how, what sort of week have you got, for instance, we're talking on a Monday now? How does the week look for you? Oh, well, I have a deadline next week for a new play to, uh, script to be done. So I'll be working on that. Um, but I also, um, what else am I doing? I've got a workshop on Wednesday night that I'm teaching so young, for some young people. Uh, and then I've got a screening of my film on Wednesday during the day. And then I'm also, this is actually, this this is a bit of a name droppy thing, uh, but I'm going to the BAFTAs at the weekend, which I'm buzzing about as well. Excellent. So, uh, but yeah, that's all like, that's actually quite a glamorous week. Usually it's um, getting up and looking at a blank page and doing some free writing and pulling my hair out um, or skiving and going for a nap at lunchtime and that kind of thing. So uh, lots of different things. But um, yeah, weeks weeks look very different um, every month, kind of. I can understand that and mine do too. But that's, uh, I'm glad I've pick, uh, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, picked today in a, in a glamorous week. A <laughs> glamorous week. I wish you could see me now, like literally still in my jammies. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> So tell us about the uh, the new play. Oh, the new play. Well, it's all kind of under wraps at the moment, um, and it's not even in first draft yet. But um, I'm working with the National Theatre of Scotland uh, to develop a new story about two women that are kidnapped. Um, so that's that's kind of the gist of it. That's very interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah, sounds very interesting. So when when will that uh, happen? Some way off, presumably. Oh, you know what it's like. It's like you actually never know the. Yeah. The trajectory of a of a um, creative thing, you know, it never it might never be made, and I think that that's one thing that I'm starting to realise. Like later in my career, is actually you just have to make, regardless of what the outcome is, and you just have to trust that even if it never is made, it's a stepping stone on the way to something else. Um, and I think there's that realising that is very freeing, um, yeah. and not to push push projects or poems actually you know if I put, sometimes you spend hours and hours on a poem and actually you never use it but it was a stepping stone to get you to realize a new structure for another poem or realize a new metaphor or something like that yeah you've got a new poetry collection coming out in fact it's your first sort of is that right your first poetry collection yeah i'd say it is i i have released another book before but it was more like documentation of my theatre show Hopeless, which had lots of kind of spoken word pieces in it. But this is 
definitely being written for the page um, which has been like a bit of a challenge and uh, having to really rethink my practice and writing um, and I think Covid helped with that you know like I used to write for performance and now when performance was kind of taken away I started doing much more writing for page and it's been yeah it's been an interesting journey and you know I, I really enjoy learning and mm-hmm. adapting to different forms um, so yeah it's coming out in November with Burning Eye Books um and i'm petrified and i'm still writing it but it's it's happening it'd be lovely to hear something either from 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 that um a preview of something or uh or something in progress or just something you've got around in your head or lying sure sure i have a um, poem called questions i have for birds that i'd like to to read to you um i live in Presswick which is out by um, the seaside um, near Glasgow but I also live beside an airport and <laughs> uh, I can see the runway from my house and I notice a lot of plane watchers coming out and watching the planes and I have a new hobby that I'm a plane watcher watcher I'm like very curious <laughs> about these people um, but also when I'm watching the the plane watchers I also see that there's like loads of birds and I think the birds really love the the open space of the the airport I I mean I feel like they're living on the edge but I do love watching them and I noticed that they were um they always like fly for much longer and in the same spot when it's windy and that made me think and I really wanted to ask them some questions about that so that's what the poem's about it's called questions I have for birds Questions I have for birds. Where do you go at night? How do you hear without any ears? Does it hurt when you lose a feather? Are you friends with one another? You know the worms that you strangle out of the air? It's like screaming red newborns. Do you chew them or swallow them whole? I've never seen a glint of a tooth, so I imagine that's how it works. Is it like swallowing a piece of spaghetti? Is it like sucking your tongue to the spine? Can you confirm? Can you feel them squirm in your belly like eels until the acid melts them to mush? I see you on windy days, flying harder and for longer. Is there more joy in that kind of weather? Gusty and unpredictable, does it make you feel invincible? I see how you dip and glide. A moment, a clarity, a break from the monotony of a daily bird routine. What does that feel like? If you had time to explain, I'd love to know. Is it like a child slapping their palms down on the ocean top? A pair of lesbians kissing hard on the street? How a violin feels when it's plucked? Does it make you vibrate? An old man shouting checkmate in a park with a board on a bench? Pardon the pun, but is it like a duck to water? Is it like coming up on a dance floor, the first taste of tea of a mother's pinky? Birds, what is the human version of flying when it's windy? Do you get lost in it? Does it feel like your purpose? Birds, tell me what I can do. I want to feel that thing always on the wind, on the surf, on the nose, on the breeze, the clarity, the coming together. That's what life is for, maybe. Sorry, I brought it back to myself again. So selfish of me. Now do say, how do you stand on such small feet? Do you have a favourite seat? How do you know what song to sing? Lovely stuff. Thanks, Layla. Yeah, and is that from the new collection? Yeah, that'll be in the new collection, yeah. It, the collection's called In Public and Private. Um, yeah, I'm just going to pick you up on something you said before. You said you were you were terrified. Is that particularly in relation to the fact that it's in print? Uh, yeah, I think so. I also, you know, hold myself to quite high expectations, which I actually am trying to trying to not do and just see that it's just part of a process but I think because I've been writing poetry for so long I've been kind of holding back on doing a collection because you only get to do your first collection once um, but I'm also dyslexic so I think that there's a real fear of um, feeling stupid or feeling excluded in some way and I'm sure you'll you'll agree with me but the more you the more you write poetry, the more you realise you've still got to learn. <laughs> so the more I'm doing it, the more I'm realising, you know, how much more I want to do and how much more I want to learn. Great. I mean, when you, and you did a, just going back a bit, you did a, a performance degree. Is that right? Mm, yeah, I, did, uh, I went to drama school. So, yeah, I was interested in that. So did you, uh, I mean, would the, the, the person who, who was there um, however many years ago, would they be surprised at what you're doing now? 
yeah they would be really surprised i also think the person that was at school would be even more surprised because you know i didn't get a lot from english at school and um i felt i felt quite stupid and actually to see that i'm a writer now it kind of blows my mind and you know i've had to do a lot of a lot of investigating why that is and actually I have to I have to battle a lot of voices in my head every time I sit down at the page you know as I'm sure we all do but yes I mean it that and that's also interesting to me because you work uh, a lot in schools or you're 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 Mm. a writer in uh, residence with 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 Scottish schools is it yeah so I last year I was um writer in residence at the Edinburgh International Book Festival so yeah but I do a lot of working skills and I also work with the Scottish Book Trust a lot um, within uh, their stuff and I absolutely love doing it um, yeah. and but you know when I'm teaching my priority is the creative kind of spirit rather than getting them to write something polished it's much more important for me that they you know express themselves um, and that's I know that that's maybe not a, a completely popular opinion when it comes to teaching poetry but for me that's where the magic happens and that's where the the confidence has grown and that's where the you know reflection happens um for the young people so that's what i you know i prioritize i completely resonate with that uh yeah i I mean if i work in schools i for me it's not about uh the polished thing it's very Mm. much about awakening a kind of a sense of being able to do it Mm. I think there are, as you say, I think the voices that tell us that we can't for any reason, for all sorts of reasons, actually, it's not for me, other people do that, are very strong. Um, Yeah, I feel like failure is something that I have started to really, like, appreciate and actually um, to teach how to fail in schools is quite radical, I think. And, you know, for me to go in and say, oh, like, you've messed that up or you've got the spelling wrong or the grammar wrong, I kind of, you know, I make fun of it and, and it's a joyful thing. And actually, that just doesn't happen in schools. Um, so I think, you know, to teach failure, to teach creativity is to teach people how to fail. And I think that that is a vital way to, a vital thing to learn in your life, not just within your practice, you know. Yeah, actually, really, uh, again, uh, resonates with something I've been thinking about today. I'm doing a very briefly. I'm doing a project in Leeds about sports uh, and cool. uh, poetry, song, all sorts of stuff, but about roller skating. One of the things that they in roller skating they talk about is the first thing you do is learn how to fall. Mm, uh, yeah, and I love that. You know, the idea that you've got to learn how to fall uh, in order then to stay up, to be able, to, well, to have the courage in a way to get up. Uh, again so um yeah it sort of resonates that, yeah. yeah it's great you know um so it'd be lovely to hear uh another poem if you've got one handy sure yeah um so this one is called cherish it and i wrote it i was up in wick i don't know if you've ever heard of wick but it's um on the east coast of scotland it's really really remote um mm. and it's a beautiful spot like it's got lots of history lots of famous stones like very old stones uh, and i went to this uh, this place um where you know people had lived for thousands and thousands of years and i felt it was very quiet and i felt completely um I was a bit lost at the time and I found myself praying, which is something that I don't, I'm not very religious, but um, I do, I do think I'm quite spiritual or I was spiritual in that moment. And I wrote this poem um, called Cherish It. One, I prayed for joy until I realised I already had it. It was just slower than I had imagined. Moved like syrup off a spoon and caught me off guard on a walk, washing the dishes, a violin sailing through my tinny speaker on my iPhone. Two. I prayed for power until I realised I did not want it. Not the blue suit kind anyway. I know it would change me into someone that I would avoid at a speed dating event or a queue at the bank. Three. I prayed for love. Until I remembered what bell hooks had told me, that love is action. So I open the window to let the wasp out. I listen carefully when someone tells me their name. I look to the dogs because they are the love experts. And they tell me with their gritty, grumpy voices that love is effort. Love is a slog. Love is work, baby, and it's more than a nine to five. I'm still working on my dog voice, by the way. Four, I prayed for forgiveness. 
until I realised we are born to sin. How else would we learn our unbearable lessons? Aren't we all just bathing in it? Even the bald monk raking leaves, the child waving at the train, even they don't get it right every time. Know that everything I have done wrong, I live with. Five. I prayed for solace until I realised I was already alone and that no one will ever truly know me. Even a child, even a lover that I keep for an eternity, even if my bones one day wash upon the shore of a different land and scientists in the lab prod and poke and dip me and die make a computerised version of what they think I look like, they will not know me. They will not know what made me come, what face came to me in the black windows, what it felt like for me to eat a mango in the middle of summer, just stripping down my chin. Six. I prayed for direction until I realised I was on a one-way system through through the bog with its fairies and moss its prehistoric wood buried under layers of muck ice the faded coke can glinting from the heather through the awkward silences through the death of our parents through the intimacy of our friendships through the salt and sweat through the monday mornings through the dumping and being dumped through having to try again and again and again and that's what hurts like a nail to the foot seven I prayed on my knees and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed until the fabrics of this world and the others thinned and I heard a voice say, cherish it. Lovely stuff. Thanks. Thank you very much. And is that also from the new collection? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not made the final cut yet, but I'd say that that they will be. They're my favourites at the moment, so I'm sure that they will be. So one, uh, just to, uh, I, I noticed that your solo show, Daddy Drag, Mm. won uh, an award in 2019, the Autopsy Award, which sounds brilliant, for groundbreaking mm. work in Scotland. Um, so tell us a bit about what a solo show from you is. Is it, is it, is it you and the poetry or is it something else? Is what, yeah, I'd be, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, so um, I, <laughs> I'm a bit all over the place. I don't really have a brand because I always think of my idea first and then I kind of like let the form um, kind of... I suppose assist it mm. so for example my first show hopeless was a spoken word show and everything in it was um kind of um poems interweaved with a uh, multimedia so i had like recordings of my family and it speaking in it um and i also had like video and um lots of and me just speaking normally whereas daddy drag um was about my my relationship to my dad and I and I did write it as a spoken word show and then I really didn't like it as a spoken word show so I decided to make it a drag show instead and um my mum narrated it through recordings um so it was very different and probably I don't know if you would say it was poetry or not I think some people have described it as poetry but I wonder if that's just sometimes because they know me as a like a poet um but it definitely felt more like a drag show that was like the vehicle to tell the story and I kind of feel like that with like all my art like I I have the story and then I figure out what framing is going to help assist it in the the best way I suppose um and then I can do that on a micro level as well so I can do that within a poem structure or within a you know a, 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 a performance set you know decide how best for it to to all sit together in a way and I think that that's what really came from from drama school you know is figuring out the journey that the audience will go on whenever they they hear the story yeah I really like the idea of the kind of form being dictated not dictated but led Mm. by the by 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 the content really of what you've you've got and that also that will sort of mean that you do lots of different kinds of of different kinds of things yeah Um, and I suppose what's giving you um the most satisfaction at the moment in terms of writing to be honest um i don't know if you've ever heard of it but i'm actually doing the artist's way by julia cameron at the moment um have you heard of it yes it's amazing it's actually it's like 30 years old i think um maybe even longer but um it's it's kind of like a a workbook and it's all about rediscovering your your creativity that's how it's kind of framed and every week you're asked to look at a different aspect of creativity and i think it's about trying to like find your um find your inner child a little bit and like be playful and you know what we were talking about failure mm. earlier as well and and it's um it's amazing actually and yeah they make you do three 
three pages of continuous writing every morning and you have to take yourself on an artist's date every week so you have to take yourself on a date by yourself to go do something that fills you up and I think the whole idea is about you know that your creativity is a cup um, that you have to fill um, in order to to write stuff um, and that that can be from playing you know they encourage you to do things she encourages you to do things that you love to do when you were younger um and stuff like that but yeah that at the moment that has been my anchor actually um and just going back to the, all of that time has given me real um structure and yeah filled up my cup a little bit I think um so yeah poetry at the moment is my is my favorite form right now and I'm getting mentored as well um, by Kim Adonisio who's just a hero of mine so that is that is really filling up my cup as well I'm interested to know uh yeah I'm interested to know what your artist date was this week <laughs> oh what was my art I went to it was a bit boring this week actually I went to my I went to the Glasgow Film Festival and saw a film a French film um which is Again, a bit glamorous for this week. Like I also did collaging last week, where I just cut up loads of newspapers, which was really fun as well. Um, so yeah, just things like that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, again, uh, yeah, just, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in that. I, I was, I was working with some young people at Chapel FM last year. One of them does a lot of drawing and working with wax pastels. She's only about mm. thirteen. And she got us doing. She led a, a workshop with with us, I with the rest that. of us, and it was great. And it really set me on a on a journey. And I bought some stuff. Some, I, mean, I mean, I've never seen myself as a artist. I'm not in that sense a visual person. But um, I um, so I've been doing that more or less every day for about six oh, cool. months. So making sort of just really sort of marks on a page, and I spend five minutes on it, and I, and I, then I put it away and. I spray it with that fixative <laughs> it doesn't all go away and and, and then I leave it and it, I really I've really really enjoyed it that sounds amazing and I bet you are less scared about failing when you're doing that because it's like a new thing exactly. I think like writers really struggle because you know if you've been writing for a while there's certain expectations on you but actually when you're asked to draw you, there's a freedom that is just you know amazing that's right yeah i don't have any you know i'm not nothing i've nothing to prove with it it's just mm. it's just it's just me and it does give me a freedom to i said well to fail actually is and to uh, you know, I, I don't even know whether something's good or not generally i just i just enjoy doing it um mm. yeah and it's and it's color in a in a world that can frankly be uh you know colorless yeah oh, absolutely um so i mean just tell me a bit about the film that's on this week in your glamorous yeah. week so I, I made a film last year, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, it was it was crazy because, I, you know, I, I usually work mostly by myself. I'll have like a couple of collaborators. But I had a crew of like 28 people. It was crazy. Um, so it was like a massive jump. Um, and it's about a young girl who goes um, on work experience in a nail salon. Um, but it's really about the relationship between this young girl and her boss. And it kind of... I kind of wrote it after Me Too because I was finding there was a lot of stories about the abuse of power between um, with men abusing their power. And actually, there was something that I felt was missing from the conversation because I've been in lots of kind of sticky relationships with older women or women that have more power than me. Mm. And I really wanted to, to kind of talk about that. And it's um, it's premiering at the Glasgow, Glasgow Short Film Festival. So which is exciting. Oh well, yeah. good luck with that. That sounds brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, so can we have uh, yeah, one more poem and and um, uh, and then suddenly we might have to. Well, we're going to hear a piece of music that uh, you've you've chosen as well. But yeah, it'd be lovely Amazing. to hear hear something more. Um, so this poem is called Weep. Um, and it's about <clears throat> I'm a big crier. I cry all the time. Um, and I wanted to write a poem about that. Weep. I cannot stop crying. I am a dam overflowing, a spot squeezed, splatted and snotted. I am an open wound seeping, a rainforest downpour. It would seem that I am spilling from my seams. 
I am a tidal wave, a tsunami. If only you could see me, my banks are breaking, the boys are bobbing, the boats rising. I am unable to control myself at the telly. I cried, I'm a celebrity, a plea to a charity, a dog trust advert, children winning tickets on the radio to a concert. I could be paid to weep for a widow at graveside. Recently, there isn't a day I haven't cried. I could fill a bath. I could run a river. I could star in an opera. No limits to my drama. I could boil my tears to make you a plate of pasta as long as you didn't mind the salt. I have been broken in at my vault and maybe I'm just crying for the swell of it. How it all oozes into our edges and soaks us to our toes. How some things shine and others are unfair to the bone. Just give me it all. Don't ever let me close back up because feeling it is the only thing I've got. Great stuff. Thanks ever so much for, for being with us, Leila. Just wanted to ask you, um, yeah, so if is there anything, you've talked about the poetry, you've talked about the, the book coming out. Oh, yes, in fact, I want to ask you about that. Just before I ask you this question, uh, you, where, <laughs> when's the book coming out and when are you doing your tour? And it'd be great to arrange something at Chapel FM if we can. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, so I'm doing, the, the book's coming out in November. So I think it's going to be out at the start of the month. Um, and I'm hoping to be um, kind of in the north of England, maybe December and January. Mm. So it'll be sometime around then. And I am, what else did you ask me? That's everything. Lovely. Yeah. Um, good. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we'll get talking about that. And uh, yeah, anything particularly uh, you're looking forward to in the next few months uh, in uh, terms of writing? In terms of writing? In terms of what, what I'm or looking performing. forward to reading? Uh, well, yes, yeah. Well, that's an interesting one. I haven't asked you about actually. I, well, my question was more about, um, yeah. So, anything you're particularly, you know, you've got a commission coming up or something you you're looking forward to getting your your, your hands into. I'm actually writing. I've been commissioned to write a children's book um, by the Rainbow Library in the summer um, about being bi, which will be interesting. And they're they're hoping to have. Um, to increase the LGBTQ presence of books in libraries and schools. So they've commissioned like 10 writers um, from that community to write about um, their kind of queer identity. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be really fun. Well, I think it's going to be really hard, but it'll be really fun as well. And it'll be another kind of um, thing to add to to add to the CV, or not to the CV, but to the array of forms that I work within. Great. And it's good to work in different... I mean, it just seems to be less stigma attached to, to working in different forms now, it's, I think. I think it's easier, to be honest, to spread your th your yourself through different projects in terms of, like, economically as well mm. um, and just keep things moving. I do wonder if, you know, if I had committed to one form, whether I'd be, you know, winning Oscars or, you know, winning, <laughs> winning T.S. Eliot prizes, but actually I'm too busy all over the place. But... You know, you just have to follow where, where the ideas come from. That's what I always say. Follow the idea, follow the heart, or follow the money. Those are the three the three things you've got to ask yourself. Oh, that's great. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just, yes, you mentioned reading. What are you reading at the moment? I am actually reading uh, Joelle Taylor's book um, at the moment. So um, I don't know if I can swear, but it's called Canto. Um, <laughs> and I am... Really looking forward to Ocean Vong's new um, book coming out as well. That is on my radar for sure. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks for talking to us. And um, it would be great to hear the piece of music you've suggested, which is by The Gloaming. Could you say why you've chosen that? Yeah, I just, um, I just love traditional music and it makes me feel so many emotions. And I... I wonder if I have been influenced by that with my poetry in terms of like the the movement of the of it or the rhythm of it, how the rhythm changes throughout the piece. That's kind of why I picked it. And also um I also just you know, it just reminds me of home as well. I'm a half Irish so I, I like I like to be reminded of that. So it's called the Sailor's Bonnet by the Gloaming. Thanks ever so much for talking to us, Layla. Thank you so much for having me and I hope to see you see you soon.
Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. In Our Element, a poet's inquiry into climate change. Falling or flying. Episode 10. We forget what's earth. Regeneration. We forget what's life. See, we are hungry. We have nowhere else to go. After exploring all the elements and seeing how interconnected they are, and how, in the same way, every single strand of the climate crisis touches some aspect of our daily lives. Where do we go next? How can we be the change we want to see? What does active hope and resistance actually look like? You can still hear me. Yes, I can yeah. hear you clearly, and can you hear me? I can hear you. I wanted yeah, to talk yeah. to the poet John Kinsella in Western Australia, who's been living, writing and campaigning for many decades. Hello there, John. Hello. I'm, I'm just nice going to say hello, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, in this slightly bizarre fashion, through these copper wires of yours. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's copper that's been around probably for 40 years, so, yeah. you know, what's yeah. there should last as long as possible. I think we should be um, pulling back, detechnologizing. Technology where it's essential for people's well-being is very different from, uh, you know, the new computer, the new car, the new, and so on. I'm anti-consumerist. I do believe we need to minimize our consumption. I believe in total redistribution of wealth. All people should have the same. I do believe that, you know, there shouldn't be such thing as millionaires and billionaires. I, I don't believe that's a feasible way to exist it only will lead to concentrations of not only power and wealth but of ill usage of the world at the biosphere it's, it's basically wealth is an abuse of the biosphere so um yeah i come from that quite radical position and i understand that people find this hard to take and um, I suppose it comes down to don't read my poetry that's fine i accept that you know it, we all have to speak as we feel that's how I feel, and thus I speak. John Kinsella is not alone. The Welsh poet Mena Elvin also has a long history of campaigning and resisting. I came into poetry as a kind of response to the Vietnam War, and in the 60s, that opened my eyes. I became a pacifist and a language activist, I campaigned uh, not only for the language, but also um, for nuclear disarmament. The anti-apartheid movement, we were actually on the ground uh, hoping to make things better. And I think it's part of being Welsh, being in a country that has had to fight for the right to live one's life in Welsh, in the Welsh language, and, and, and it all... I suppose, uh, grows from that, that you're aware of other people's rights being denied and the kind of battles that we fought um, in the 60s, they change all the time and so much is hidden and that's what poets do, is bring it out to the open, give it light, we're searching for light and understanding, we don't know the answers and we have to live the questions. Back in Western Australia, poet Charmaine Papertalk Green agrees poetry has a role to play. Poetry is very, very powerful. You can write poems, you can put them in a book, or you can read them at a poetry reading. You're not forcing anything on anyone, and they can take away the messages that they want. Your words and the messages you're letting out into the universe to float to someone's ears. So we're all in it together, but what we do and, and what's enough and what isn't enough, those are the sort of questions we have to ask ourselves. And it doesn't matter who we are, like we've all got a role to play. 
John tells me how he lends his words to speak on behalf of environmental causes. On the page, at the barricades, and on the ground, on so-called development sites. I've been involved in hundreds and hundreds of environmental uh, events and processes over my lifetime, and each one is as important as the other, but many of them don't succeed. I've been involved in a few that have, but many don't, and you just got to keep trying. Down in the city of Perth, there's the Billio wetlands, incredible tract of um, remnant wetlands in the city, and the Conservative government started putting a highway through this. When the bulldozers came and when it was really the crunch began, many people just sort of materialised and were there and people were consulting with Aboriginal elders because so many different people committed themselves. They did stop the highway and they're revegetating the damaged area, which was just horrendous. It was a, a crime against humanity as well as against nature. And so the bulldozer poem was written at the height of this. I'm a pacifist, a very committed pacifist, but um, I do believe that, you know, Poetry is there to be used in the, the most verbal way possible. And this is one of those poems. The Bulldozer Poem. Bulldozers rend flesh. Bulldozers make devils of good people. Bulldozers are compelled to do as they are told. Bulldozers grimace when they tear the earth's skin from earth they came. Bulldozers are made by people who also want new mobile phones to play games on and to feed families. Bulldozers are observers of phenomena. Decisions are taken out of their hands. They are full of perceptions. They will hear our pleas and struggle against their masters. Bulldozers slice and dice. Bulldozers tenderize. Bulldozers reshape the sandpit, making gruering noises, kids' motor skills. Bulldozers slice the snake in half so it chases its own tail, writing in front of its face. Bulldozers are vigorous percussionists, sounding the snap and boom of hollows caving in. Feathers of the cockatoos are whisper in the roar. Bulldozers deny the existence of ether, though they know deep down in their pistons, deep in their levers, that all is fears and heavens and voices of ancestors worry at their peace. Bulldozers recognise final causes and embrace outcomes that put them out of work. There's always more scrub to delete, surely, surely. O oh, continuous crack tractor, OS and U blades, each to his orders, his skill set. Communal as D9 dozers whose buckets uplift to asteroids waiting to be quarried. Oh, bulldozer, your history. Oh, those halt tractors working the paddocks. Oh, the first slow tanks crushing the battlefield. The interconnectedness of being. Philosopher. Oh, your makers, Cummings and Caterpillar. Oh, great cat, we grew up in their thrall, whether we knew it or not, playing sports where the woodlands grew, where you rode in after the great trees had been removed. You innovate and flatten. We must know your worldliness, working with companies to make a world of endless horizons. It's a team effort excoriating an ecosystem. Not even you can tackle an old growth tall tree alone, but we know your power, your pedigree, your sheer bloody mindedness. Sorry, forgive us, we should keep this civil dozer. In you is a cosmology. We have yelled the names of bandicoots and possums, of kangaroos and echidnas, of honey eaters and the day sleeping tawny frogmouth. You kill in its silence. Now we stand before you, supplicant and yet resistant, asking you to hear us over your war cry, over your work ethic being played for all it's worth. Hear us, hear me, don't laugh at our bathos. Take us seriously, forgive our inarticulateness, our scrabbling for words as you crush us, the world as we know it, the hands that fed you, that made you. Listen not to those officials who have taken advantage of their position, who have turned their offices to hate the world and smile, kissing the tiny hands of babies that you can barely hear as your engines roar with power. But you don't see the exquisite colour of the world, bulldozer. Green is your irritant. We understand, bulldozer, we do. It is fear that compels you, rippling through eternity, embracing the inorganics of modernity. John's wholehearted commitment recognises a responsibility to speak on behalf of the land, the more-than-human world. Like him, Charmaine, Mena and many others, we can keep on living the questions, listening to different perspectives and understanding how connectedness runs through all our lives.
a method Professor Richard Dawson of Newcastle University applies to his own work. Engineering on its own is insufficient and it has to recognise the interplay between what we build, uh, what we put in the ground, the environment around it and the people that use those engineering systems. It's within a much wider social and environmental context. With every day that goes by, we're building more things. It's like accruing a debt and rather than pay our way out of it, we're actually adding to that debt. And climate change is increasing the, the rate of interest that we pay on that debt. And it will take time and it is difficult to make sweeping changes to our lifestyles. And so where I really think the government can do more is actually starting to give us options to do things differently. You know, we can tell people, get on your bike, cycle to work. You know, that's easily said. But the last thing you really want to do is get on your bike uh, and then have to you know, push your way around a congested road network where there's not space for you to cycle safely. Changing the infrastructure, making a commitment to that, and a lot of other stuff will start to follow because people will see the change. At this point, change is inevitable. It's up to us to decide which way we want it to go and choose that every day. Where's the hope in all of this? In Canada, Deborah McGregor is Anishabek and Whitefish River First Nation and a climate justice academic. Part of like our way of thinking as Anishinaabek is there's always hope. And what we're often asking for is the strength to be able to deal with what's coming, right? What do we need to do to build our strength? I guess people would call that resilience. People have the capacity to do beautiful, imaginative things. And you have to believe in that too. Yeah, like for sure we're destructive and a lot of our stories speak to that, but we also have the capacity to do amazing things as well. And I think that's partly where the hope is. And we need to, I think, focus on that a bit more. And we need to pop out of a very particular way of thinking and understanding the world, going beyond the linear and hierarchical. And I think art's one of the ways of doing that. From a more joined-up, holistic way of living, we might find art and science needn't be so very different. All the elements are what we are, and our imaginations can be nourished by a sense of intimacy and mutuality. Buddhist monk Ajahn Suchito. Imaging is part of our, our heritage. We've been doing that since people painted on the cave walls. We've been imaging. That's part of what it is to be a human being. You access depth, meaning, purpose, mystery, life, death, birth, pain, joy. You, you access it at an imaginal level. Poetry, the word comes from poesis, to create, to make, to fashion. It's a very conscious fashioning that's associated with depth. I call the depth experience, which you might say the heart experience, the experience of the inner consciousness. And you bring that forth and it speaks because there's a certain potency of that which arises from the depths. The potency of the image means it often speaks more than the words say because they carry the potency of something brought up from the depths. We can choose now to risk going beneath the surface of things and beyond the literal. John Kinsella. Poetic language is the way I express myself. It's a tool I have, but it's a tool of privilege and it's inarticulate. The more I can explain my position, the more I can articulate what I think and how I go about doing what I do, the more inarticulate I really am in the ways that count. The great silences, the great um, language of uh, intimacy, of caring of, for other people and, and for creatures around you and you know the vegetation and all the rest of it is actually not the language of explanation. It's the language of presence. The real speech that matters is when I'm outside, and like I was working this morning, and the first fairy ring came into the um, season and the uh, ringneck parrots were around me and I was listening to them and there was a whole level of articulation going on that I was desperately trying to connect with. Then what intrudes is a line of poetry. <laughs> it comes in. It has to be written. I think that, you know, Poets can speak and make their work useful in the moment of dire need, but I don't think it's the ultimate answer. 
I think it's part of something moving towards an answer. In a time of immense uncertainty, vulnerability and change, we might be more aware of where and how we live. Charmaine Papertalk Green, who belongs to the Yamaji Aboriginal Nation, reflects on changes brought by the pandemic. Now, because we're, we've had really good rains, we're in wildflower season, the land is carpeted in wildflowers. I've always described this season as country singing to us and making us really happy because where I come from, it, it's really harsh land. It's just a harsh environment. With COVID-19, it seems that the local non-Aboriginal people have suddenly found all these wildflowers and they're having picnics out there. There's hundreds of them out there, places we've been going for thousands of years. I was looking at it and thinking, well, maybe this is happening because we're locked to the rest of Australia. We can't travel. We can't go to places overseas. We can't go to the other states. And maybe the locals have found their wildflowers. So, you know, it was really nice. They just look so happy, which was, a, I think it's a really nice reconnection. Rain clouds arrival. The arrival of rain clouds to be welcomed and embraced for the balance of life is wrapped within. Nature's way, nothing else. Precious rain to kiss the face of country. Filling drinking cups of life bringing presence to the cycle of growth and living bush foods flourish. Wildflowers pop up to say hello, allowing the land to smile, moving deep over country to awaken the seeds, to awaken the land, to emerge within rain clouds, bringing more than a sense of renewal, refreshing and sustaining tracks and memories across the land, across the country, hold their place. When we know we belong to something that arises from the human perspective and goes beyond it, we're more likely to treat each other and the land with respect and make better choices. Richard Dawson again. The landscape's changing, changing weather conditions are influencing that, but I think that still the dominant force is humanity. Our choices about reservoir construction, farming, forestation, deforestation, these are all huge human drivers of change and choices we're making. And each one of those often individual choices adds up and creates you know, huge landscape change. And that has an impact on a lot of other things. I think a lot of the changes that are needed, they will hopefully lead to something quite different. The decarbonisation of our energy supply will change the infrastructure that we have in our cities, improving the way we manage water within our cities. We should start to see better use of green spaces to help with that. And I think that will hopefully restore some of that green and pleasant land, if you like. Even though we might think we have no agency, Everything we do, every choice we make, has a consequence. Ajahn Suchito describes how we can be part of a fit-for-purpose, positive spiral, the chain of cause and effect. Karma, I'm sure people are aware of that term. Karma doesn't begin with physical actions, it begins with mental actions. So when you begin to look into the roots of your mental behaviour, say, is there aggression, is there domination? Is there greed? Am I lying, deceiving myself, escaping from reality? Just look at that and check it. Don't let it take over. And you can begin actually to clean out those mental roots as being not just harmful for others, but distasteful to oneself because you can feel them gripping the heart. Now, if you clean that out, then what's going to happen is your actions and your speech and your perspectives will be increasingly endowed with a quality of loving kindness, compassion, living simply, respect for life, respect for others, nonviolence. And this is how the, the feet, the loop begins. You know, it starts right there. And I think the sense is, well, if you're doing it and you're speaking it and you're looking good with it, likelihood other people are going to pick it up. 
So this, this begins to change things. And you've got to recognize nobody's got a blank slate. You're either part of the solution or part of the problem. Poet and playwright Inua Elams has figured out his own way of creating a positive feedback loop. I try to be practical in, in what I do and how I meet things or the small wrongs I feel I can write or I can address in my work. And, and I think of it in the shortest of terms, what I can quote unquote control and what I can measure. And this is because the alternative and the scale of change is so vast. I try to break it into small bits and think, what can I do? And I have conversations with my friends sometimes, and I hope that they will achieve similar things. Try and make the world a better place six feet from you or three feet from you. So just think about the air around you. What can you do to make your life better and those around you within a radius? And, and if you can do so and everyone else does similar things, then we would make the world big. So hope expands that far from me, three or six feet. Then the six feet becomes 12 feet, becomes 24, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where my hope expands to. Although imbalance and injustice are deeply entrenched, imagining and enacting an alternative is the beginning of regeneration starting to build different, more whole-earth-friendly structures. What's so distressing, Linda, about the um, absolute degradation, destruction of the environment, you, you know, you've got these very rich people who make vast profits out of uh, mining and so on, and then, then they, they have their largesse, you know, they give a bit back, that kind of odious philanthropy in which uh, people think, oh, they're very generous people when they've stolen everything in the first place and damaged everything. It's such hypocrisy. But we do have the potential not to be as them. We have the potential not to purchase and participate in the goods they manufacture. We have many choices. Let's not go and buy that new telephone or let's not and let's not and let's not. The potential is in the choice. You know, a lot of people are deprived of choice. Privilege is a huge thing in choice. And a lot of people, you know, they have to do this or they have to do that because choice has been taken from them. But where there is choice, then surely that's what we should be doing. And therefore, by doing that, you actually lessen your own privilege and accord a bit more to someone else and it evens out a bit more, you know, equal distribution of wealth. We don't think about how we're going to keep taking. Every day you're, you want to train people to think about how, what am I going to give? What am I going to offer that's going to help the earth flourish as opposed to consuming at the expense of other life? Deborah McGregor is also interested in the role our most tender selves, our hearts, can play in guiding our actions on climate. I'll often hear this from Elders. I go, speak from your heart. And uh, and again, some of the, the images, like the art shows, let's say within a, a treaty process or a council, you'll see the heart within the picture. The lines come from the heart because that, that's the center of everything. And then it could go up through the mind and then out to the world and connecting to other people. But it's also the images show the connection of the heart. That's a lot harder to do especially the more educated, I guess, you could say you get because you're so inside your head. Everything is so abstract and conceptual that um, the actual embodied experience becomes a lot harder to realize. Unfortunately, we do train that out of people like your intuition and your heart knowledge. That's not as valid as what I want you to remember from page 56 of this environmental science book or from this history book. That's that's what you're going to get rewarded for not for how you feel about what's happening to the planet. It's very hard to get people off phones and off the virtual world in order to be able to connect again to the natural world, wherever people are and wherever they can start. Ajahn Suchito recommends a similar open-hearted clarity. Where you feel better is to begin to cultivate your own heart and let go of what is not yours. You start to feel better the less you're hanging on to this, that and the other, planning the future, worrying about the past, comparing yourself with other people, criticising this, that and the other, nagging yourself, beating yourself up. Unless you do that, you feel better. That's called purification. <laughs> and so, you know, you carry that out and then you look at that in the world around you and see, let creatures be who they are. You know, let them be. You know, there's room for all of us. 
You know, in some ways, a worm is more important than a human being on this planet. You know, so give it some, give it some respect. You have to like them. <laughs> you know, but let it be. You know, <laughs> find some space for it. We don't have to take over every inch of this planet. It's got to be room. If you do that, nature will take care of itself. If we do that, nature's fine. You know, but you stop messing with it, it's going to grow fine. And this is the way we deal with that fundamental human egocentricity and obsessiveness, which does us no good and damages our own hearts our relationships, our society, and the planet. Deal with that, things work out. The Buddha himself was, say, he was born under a tree, lived in the forests, got in line under a tree, and passed away under a tree. So he's deeply, deeply connected to, to the natural world. Yeah. Because this body is the natural world. This is where it belongs. The world and all its words and all its weathers are inside us, too. The matter we're made of is also what matters for the Earth's regeneration. If we only try to remember to live life on its own terms, with respect for difference, imperfection and connectedness, we can let that unfolding process be our element planting the seeds for a more nourishing future. I'm going to leave you with a poem called Nature-Based Solutions. Imagine the title very much in air quotes. Nature-Based Solutions At the webinar, propped on my kitchen table, the minister asks us to consider, third in a list of six, nature-based solutions to the crisis we find ourselves in for the very reason phrases like this are scattered like straws and clutched at, smoke rising from a house on fire. In this window to act, he calls it, a positive inflection point, I try to think of a single thing that isn't based within nature. If that means part of us all and where we live, us humans and our fellow creatures, flowers and trees, moss and mushrooms, not forgetting lichen, the dirt under my fingernails, invisible flora blooming in my gut. Above my head there's a tap-tap-tapping like the woodpecker who sometimes mistakes our house for a tree. The roofers fixing leaks round the chimney and in the gully between me and my neighbour. He took over his father's business but wouldn't want his son to. His body's shot to hell, he says, from all the clambering and crouching and clinging he has to do on roofs all over the county. He's making a consummate job of it anti-clockwise, handling every slate with such care they could be the armour of Marianne Moore's near artichoke, the pangolin, scale lapping scale with spruce cone regularity. Up here the wind and the rain puff out their cheeks, but we'll be okay now the roofer's doing what he does. He reminds me I have some nature-based solutions of my own. I open my mouth and start speaking passion flower. All the words coming out like nails, pollen-dusted verbs and vowels, mending what is broken, spreading seeds and changing with the weather. My poem, Nature-Based Solutions, ending the final regeneration episode of our series, In Our Element. 
It was produced by Philippa Gearing for Sonderbug Productions in association with New Writing North and Newcastle University, supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. We come from fire, come from snow. The music was composed and performed by Joshua Green and it's been presented by me, Linda France. Thank you very much for listening.